Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 470 is recorded live November 5th, 2020. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. We're joining me this week. We have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Very well. Enjoying the summer heat of 67 as a high today. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is, uh, I didn't think we were going to get our Indian summer this year, but it has come on in. I think we actually had had the windows open last night. and It's a pleasant surprise from running the furnace. And then also joining us this week, we have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? Darren, I am doing most excellent. Thank you for having me on this evening. And how, and how are you doing tonight? I am doing wonderful. It is nice to make it almost to a, a weekend. And then this week is, uh, and I think last week was too. It seemed like one of those weeks where you can't, you're not quite sure what day it is and crazy things are going on. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing if the next four weeks will be better. Well, the lake was really rough on Saturday and Sunday with 40 knot winds. Yeah, Sunday, it was looking ugly. You know, we had, we, we wanted to go diving that day and anywhere we could, but I mean, it was just going to be too, you know, the air temp was for like 40s, upper 30s, low 40s, yep. and yep. gusting to 40. That wasn't even something we want to dive the river on a day like that. Just screw it. We went. So, yeah, just just a little bit uncharacteristically warm, but I'm not going to complain complain about that. Well, I'd like to thank everybody who's joined us in the chat room. We have uh, Dave and Karen, who I both believe are down there in North Carolina. We have uh, Derek and Eric also joining us this week. So, thank you very much. And let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. First article we have up is preparations continue for the cutting up of the golden ray. And I'm assuming this is an actual photo looking at this in the article. It says, uh, with the VB 10,000 crane vessel now astride the ship direct golden ray in the St. Simmons sound crews have installed the gates at either end of the environmental protection barrier that surround the salvage site. The 255 foot tall twin hulled crane vessel entered St. Simmons Sounds on October 27th to much fanfare, completing its long-awaited journey after spending nearly four months in two lengthy delays docked at the port of, uh, what's that, Fernand, Fernandia, Dina? Fernandina Beach? Better, yeah, better me than me. you. I'm not yeah. going to try that one. Yeah, the VB-10,000, it almost sounds like something from a sci-fi sitcom or something. Uh, is here to use 400 foot lengths of chain and its powerful system to winches to cut the golden ray into eight pieces. Those pieces will be hoisted, hoisted up, loaded onto a waiting barge and hauled away. Since its arrival, crews have busied themselves testing and adjusting the rigging. The mooring will 
steady the VB10,000 during the cutting process. Each of the seven cuts will take about 24 hours, and the task cannot cease until completed completion once it's underway. The Golden Ray capsized on September 8th, 2019, while heading out to sea with a cargo of some 4,200 vehicles. The environmental protection barrier features mesh netting supported by sturdy pilings, floating oil mitigation boom on the surface, one mile in diameter, and it was designed to catch any vehicles or other large debris that might shake loose during the cutting. It, when, when you say any vehicles, uh, <laughs> that is... That is pretty impressive. So, uh, you know, is is the chain about a car width wide that they're using to cut this thing up? Does it have a picture of that? Yeah, I'm not seeing that in the picture. I mean, I'm just seeing the the, the vessel on its side, and they're obviously got a position to begin cutting. Yeah, I, I don't I don't see the chain right now, but I mean, the booms to col- to, to collect vehicles that <laughs> just kind of find their way there. Well, aren't there vehicles inside it too? Oh yeah, yeah. There's I mean, a, there's a bunch there, of there. vehicles on the deck. There's vehicles inside it, but it sounds like a big real cluster inside. The probably going to be buzzing right through the cars and all that too. Yeah, because I'm sure they were secured down to the deck inside. But once you start cutting through them, you're going to pull them apart pretty pretty easily. And if you're wondering why your insurance runs gasoline, yeah, yeah, because they're all going to have a little bit of gas. You're right. Gas they had and to drive crank, them on there somehow. A crankcase full of motor oil and transmission, and oh yeah, yeah, it's gonna make a mess. Could you imagine if it was all like a Tesla's? You'd be cutting through all those batteries. Parking <laughs> and sparking, maybe. Yeah, that'd be that'd be a show. Well, it's, it sees it. To, it's good to see they're getting there. Uh, it, I didn't think it'd move as quick as it is. And 24 hours to do a cut? That seems pretty quick. Yeah, it's taking a long time to get here, though. I mean, we're talking, this thing went over uh, like a, a year and two months ago. So it's been there yeah. for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what else they can do with that crane. I mean, that, that does seem like you could pull something off the bottom pretty large. Well, yeah, if you got the coin to do it, but to, just rig around and set it up. You know, I'm sure this is a eight, nine figure job here. So, oh yeah, yeah. This is an, an estimate of what that did what cost. cost. Um, I thought we had looked at that one time. It was a, like you said, multi multi million dollar job. Yeah, it's. I think it's almost what it costs to build the vessel that they're scrapping. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure before this is done, we'll get a an update on the cost. You wonder then, why they used to just leave them where they lay. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, push them out a little deeper. Well, Eric is saying 400 million. Whoa, yeah, that's a good, yeah, goodly amount. Yeah, yeah. So that's there. There's your there's your uh, nine figures right there. So yep, yeah, 400 million. 400 million to chop something up. And take care of it. I'm sure it costs more than that to build the ship, though. I mean, these things, it's ridiculous the cost of these things, so. Yeah. And this one was fairly new, so uh, I think somebody took a hit on the depreciation. <laughs> Somebody's insurance is not real happy. No. 
Um, I just wonder if the captain still has a, has a job. Oh, I'm sure he does. They need dishwashers everywhere. Come on. Yes. <laughs> Wasn't he the guy we saw at Walmart greeting us the other day? Yeah. That, that, that may be even more favorable to what he's been he's doing now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah, a lot of times they end up having criminal charges filed against them as well, too, so. And then how about this? You know, the squid, they're always trying to look for pictures and they've got, uh, one that's actually been spotted in the wild. Uh, so for the first time ever, scientists have recorded footage of the ram's horn squid, an enigma whose common shells, really their skeletons have belied their vanishing secrecy in the video below the, uh, even the scientists were shocked. Scientists have long known about the ram's horned squid. Uh, was that? Spirula. Spirula, spirula. Sounds like uh, an evil creature in a uh, Godzilla movie. Which is the only surviving member of its family today. The creature isn't endangered or even especially vulnerable. Just hard to find in nature. And the sighting itself brought one observational surprise too. The squid in the video captured by scientists at the Schmidt Ocean Institute is holding itself in a totally different orientation than the spirula spirula specimens kept in captivity. Its buoyant organ is facing downward. Its light up organ, typically used to blind prey animals below the predators, is pointed up. So you could say uh, the real squid in the wild has turned our understanding upside down. God, somebody was waiting a long time for that joke. Uh, the uh, ram's uh, uh, uh. horn squid does have 10 tentacles in total, like other squids, but it's not technically a true squid. It's a very squid-like cephalopod that has other qualities in common with fellow cephalopods like nautiluses. The shells people find are from an uh, unusual internal sh shell, like a skeleton that forms part of the liquid's anatomy. The deep sea is extremely poorly understood, so much so that the seafloor is often called the second final frontier along with space. Dragging instruments down to the right depth to observe deep sea creatures requires tons of specialized engineering because of the gigantic pressure. This tiny squid is still at least 300 feet deep at its shallow preferred depth and lives off the edge of the continental shelf very deep down. Scientists took the video using remotely operated vehicles nearly 3,000 feet deep in the Great Barrier Reef off eastern coast of Australia, the same factors that make the deep sea inhospitable to normal research styles have turned the creature who lived there into a world-class adaption dynamos. The ram's horn squid spiraling shell skeleton is a buoyancy organ that helps it adjust to depth uh, by amounts of thousands of feet per day. Humans who scuba dive use a combination of weight belts and inflatable items to sink well and then boil you again if needed. Uh, but our anatomy could simply not make the journey that far during the course of one day. The resulting shell is also feather-like compared to the heavier calcified shells we associate with shellfish like oysters, but even other spiraling shells found on beaches. I took a look at the video and... There's a lot of interesting shots here, but that video is an hour long. It's an hour long? So they, they put up the whole uh, raw video from the, the dive then? I'm looking at it now, and it's like 
you know, like you you drive in the rain or something, and all the raindrops are coming by you, and that's what it looks like. And I've been looking at it for about four minutes now, and it's like I get dizzy just watching the damn thing. Mm-hmm. And it, all you can do that? is you can just see a little bitty thing, and it's all over the place. So then I advance it up to thirty minutes, and then I got some close-ups of different animals, and it's like. Some of those animals are really weird looking. Let me tell you, I'm just curious what yeah. eats those guys. Yeah. Yeah, something even more weird. Yeah, some some of the video is quite interesting, but you gotta sort of move it around a little bit if you want to see some of the stills. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize it was that yeah. freaking deep they were going to. That's three thousand feet. Yeah, it's a, a little well, bit of a jump down there. Oh then whatever's eating them is eating them in the dark and can't see them anyway, so well, that's what's surprising me here. They must have some lights on this sucker because the visibility is awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, the nice thing now with with LEDs because you know they used to use uh, you know high intensity lamps, but they chewed up a ton of battery. You know, with LEDs, you can probably have four or five times the amount of light for the same current. Yeah, I think the the heat aspect of the other lights, plus I think the bulb glass and cases would explode mm-hmm. or implode. Yeah. Not quite the same with the LEDs. Yeah. Well, Very you cool. Gotta, you still got to have a, you know, an airspace in there for the light to work. I think it's less of an airspace. Yeah, you, you could, yeah I, I would think so that they would use an airspace. Although, instant, on a side note, this Halloween we found that our LED dive lights work really good for lighting up jack Just put them on low power, they run for hours. Ah, cool. Now, um, have the dive light, the dive lights, or the LEDs? They do okay, not submerged, because I can remember early on with the dive lights, it was you always wanted to keep them, uh, didn't want to run them too much outside of water because they overheat. Uh, they were engineered to, yeah, we to just, have that water on them. Yeah, we just we just ran them on, on low power because if we had them on high power, it would like just about probably cook the pumpkin, you know. So. <laughs> Well, and, and I do know some uh, uh, industrial repairmen who will use the the small dive lights just as lights because they like how they're uh, they're pretty durable. You know, they can drop them in all sorts of liquids and they survive. Next one we have up is inside the Titanic submarine tour will take you to a shipwreck. They say if you've ever dreamt of exploring a famous wreckage of the Titanic, now's your chance. But it will cost you almost two hundred thousand uh, dollars, and then I think this is an Australia newspaper, and they're saying it was a hundred and seventy-five thousand in Australian dollars. Yeah, I was reading another article on this, and they have justified that price because that was in today's money the price of a first-class ticket aboard the Titanic. Oh, so that's a justification. Well, I mean, if they they could pay that much for a first class ticket on the Titanic. Why can't you pay that much for a submarine ride? Come on. There you go. Yeah. Uh, said launched by the tour company Ocean Gate Expeditions, the experience will be part of an eight day trip to Newfoundland in Canada, taking nine people at a time. The trip will include traveling to an underwater shipwreck, five hundred ninety five kilometers away, as well as six to eight hour submarine tour of it. You'll be joined by just two other guests underwater but the entire trip costs $175,000 in Australian or 96 
1,368 uh, pounds. Uh, you uh, also would just be a tourist. You're deemed a mission specialist, and you'll help experts doing surveys of the site, which stretches for as far as 25 nautical miles. To be able to join the expedition, you need to fill an application, which includes a video interview and training. However, it's already pretty popular. 36 people signed up for the first six trips planned next year, some of which, according to Yahoo, have also been a few to sign up for. Uh, uh, $350,000 in Australian, the uh, Virgin Galactic space launch. Uh, Ocean Expedition has already completed expeditions in deep sea across the Bahamas, Hudson Canyon. If this trip is successful, it'll be the first time the public will see the wreckage in 15 years. Stockton Rush, president of Ocean Gates Expedition, explained what to expect down there. All the bones are gone. There are no bodies down there. There are boots and shoes and clothes that will show up where people were 100 years ago, and that's very somber. The world's largest passenger ship at the time, the Titanic sank after hitting an iceberg five days after departing New York on April 10th, 1912. Of the 2,224 passengers and crew on board, more than 1,500 people were killed. The last remaining survivor, the disaster, uh, Milvana Dean, died on May 31st, 2009, at aged seven, uh, 97. Earlier wow. this year, it was announced that the Titanic will get new protections under an agreement between Britain and U.S., which will allow the two governments to be able to grant and veto applications to visit. If you can't quite uh, stretch the, uh, the price tag and can instead stay the Titanic theme Airbnb in Northern Ireland for 32 pounds or $58 Australian uh, each per night. Yeah, there's, no, there's something that just rubs me wrong about the this whole Britain-US agreement. I know there was a, a group that was taking folks down as the Titanic a number of years ago. So Yeah, uh, they, they, I think they, it was they, a maybe Russian organization that was doing that. Yeah, I know because they were like severely criticized for damaging the deck. They were uh, landing in an area like, you know, from the Titanic movie where you could see the prow and you could do the whole King of the World thing, but they would land on the deck there to give the passengers that impression from the movie. And they actually were really de destroying the deck doing that. I don't know if that's why it came to an end, but they only, you know, called the moratorium on the submarine trips to the Titanic. It, I want to say, you know, 2010-ish thereabouts. So, yeah, I I can't remember the details on that. If that was the reason it stopped, or if there were other reasons. Uh, separately, we've also covered in the last few weeks. Uh, there's uh, the company that owns the salvage rights. The Titanic uh, was trying to go down and get the wireless radio, and uh, a judge had approved it. And then there was a, immediately a lawsuit by the U.S. government to try and block it. Why would they want to stop them? Oh, because it's a, a grave site and it was disrespectful and all sorts of that. I think it was just uh, uh, some bureaucrat somewhere just trying to justify a year's worth of uh, pay. Well, it's it's indeed a grave site, but I don't see how that would be disrespectful. I think they're... Because the, the, the people... The people who were who ran the wireless, you know, there there were a, a number of heroes on that ship, which you know we haven't heard so much about. The 
the the engineers who maintained the generator and kept the ele- the electrical systems running and knew they weren't going to get off the ship, but they knew that if the uh, if they left their posts, the electricity got on the ship and the uh, the winches for the light bolts are controlled by electricity. So they they stuck at their post and only one of them survived. And there were yeah. so many others that, uh, you know, the wireless operators and different folks who knew that they were not going to make it out by staying at their posts and they stayed there anyway. I don't know how uh, retrieving the Coney would be disrespectful. Someone must I think it's a... Well, I, I, I think it's a case of when you don't want something to happen, you lawyer up and you try and find any way, whether you believe in the argument or not. And I think that's what's going on. I think that they have just decided that the whole site, nobody should visit, nobody should do anything. Uh, I know that Ballard has kind of uh, come down and taken that approach recently. And maybe it's people just trying to follow his lead on that. But uh, I'm, I'm not a big one on saying which i've said many times before that just because somebody had died or it's a tragedy that that immediately makes it off limits i yeah this i mean the majority of these places we visit as divers you know had fatalities on them if not in the sinking of the vessel you know divers visiting afterwards there you know, there's all these are all all sad stories um you know we're not being disrespectful by, by going to these places, though. I mean, when I view it when I'm going to, like, the Cedarville, which, you know, there were uh, 11 men lost their lives when that vessel went down. Um, it's visiting a cemetery, you know? And it's, you know, divers have our own way of visiting a cemetery. And the vast majority of us are quite respectful there. There are some, there are some you know, <laughs> exceptions, of course. But... Uh, I don't see how visiting a place is disrespectful, really. Yeah, yeah I don't either. Yeah, Eric's yeah. mentioning, imagine the type of scuba gear you could buy with that money. He's talking about the uh, 200K to go to the Titanic, yeah. Yeah, some I, pretty fancy stuff, I'm sure, Eric. I mean, uh, probably, you could probably buy a good used submarine for that money, too, you know? So, I mean. Yeah, the, the, the uh, people who are shelling out that type of money could do that and buy scuba gear. I mean, they're, they're not at all worried. <laughs> this is just not, it's, they're just in a completely different uh, financial league than we are. Uh, the, I think that's kind of like that, us going out and buying a bicycle. The, the, the people that do that, they could pay someone else to go scuba diving for them because it's too cold that day. So. <laughs> take me, take me. Yeah. <laughs> can I, can I yeah. tag me coach? Take me in. I'm ready. Yeah. And let's see, uh, another article from Popular Science, How Scientists Keep Ancient Shipwrecks from Crumbling to Dust. One chemical reaction can turn a massive vessel to nothing if not protected. From underwater, a centuries-old shipwreck can almost look brand new. When conditions are just right, wood can stay undeterred, escaping the usual fate of being eaten by hungry sea creatures or bacteria. And And unlike other artifacts that must be dug up in graves, and hidden years under dirt and dust. This ship went down exactly as it is, perfect scene detailing what ordinary folks, explorers, and merchants of ages past were carrying with them on their voyage to the New Worlds. A lot of people were ter- referred to them as time capsules, says John Bratton, 
a professor of anthropology at the University of West Florida specializing in shipwrecks. They give us a snapshot of items that people used, even clothing, what they ate, what they carried, what activities were conducted on, what part of the ship, what things were brought for defense. Shipwrecks can stay sunk indefinitely without causing much disturbance. The real trouble happens when they come to the surface. In the recent years spent among the fish in the sea, cellulose in the wood has already begun to break down, and the only thing that is holding the ship and its wooden bits together are now the sticky water between its cells. The problem is when you bring up the wood, it's been impregnated by water for so long, it's actually swelled a bit, says Mark Schwartz, professor of anthropology at Grand Valley State University, who has investigated shipwrecks in the Great Lakes. As you may imagine, when the water dries, the boat structure is kaput. The second the ship hits dry air, the clock is ticking. Researchers try to preserve the wood structure temporarily by coating the pieces in polyethylene glycol or literally zapping it with a giant freeze dryer. But if that doesn't last forever, a, a sneaking, waiting acidification process that can begin any moment can turn even the best preserved boats into dust in a matter of days. That's the situation right now for the Vasa, a massive warship in Sweden that sank in 1628. While years and years of preservation have gone to keeping the 226-foot vessel alive, out of its watery grave, iron and metal nails in the wood have already started acidifying and thereby destroying the wood. And once the process has started, it's nearly impossible for the whole boat not to fall ill. I mean, we heard him come in before. Yep. And let me see. I can pop over to see what he's been doing. Is, is Craig a millennial? He may be. A noodle boy. Uh, yeah, we've got the original recording started at 9.54, and this one's starting at 9.35, so... Yeah, who knows? He's a slacker. Someday somebody's going to start feeling sorry for Craig. Uh, but it says one of uh, Michigan's most visible shipwrecks, a fan, uh, Francisco Morazan, resting about 300 yards off the southern coast of South Manitoua Island, about an hour northwest of Traverse City. The German cargo ship was 234 feet long and built in 1922 as the Arcadia. The ship name went under more changes. Elbling in 1934, Empire Congress in 1945, the Bruins in 1946, the Scald in 1947, the Ringus in 1948, Los Mayas in 1958, and finally the Francisco Morazan in 1958. October 1960, the ship's last voyage began in Miami, up to Toronto, through the Great Lakes to Chicago. It left Chicago on November 28th, ran into fog that evening. Later that night, a snowstorm kicked in, snow blinding the crew, causing the ship to run aground the South Manitoba Islands, where it remained to this day as state property. It says, if you want to visit, you can take a two-and-a-half-mile hike from the village on the island and view it from the shore. But do not swim out to it. Several people have attempted to swim from shore, and there are currents out there, and uh, they, it did not end well for them. So it's not recommended you swim out there from shore. It probably, I mean, would be something you could kayak to. Yeah, you could it, kayak to it or, you know, take a boat out to if you have a boat. Um, we we've been out there several times. Amy it's probably deceptively. It looks deceptively close, partially because just the size of the vessel. Right. 
And I'll tell you, it stinks. <laughs> You're looking at this picture. What do you think all that white stuff is on that boat? Okay. Voila. You do, <laughs> you do not want to be downwind of that boat. That's I mean, chalk. I, I, yeah. I've been, I've been up there a couple of times. And you know, one time we were just you know drifting and we were going to you know open up our sandwiches and going to eat lunch. And got downwind of it, and oh my gosh, my gag a maggot. I mean, it is bad, <laughs> bad, bad. It's just chock full of comorants, and that is their home, and they are not happy to see you. And uh, keep in mind, if you get too close to it, they will try to dive bomb you. They are not happy. They are not, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, they will not make you feel very welcome up there. It's a, it's a real cool boat, you know. I mean, you can take your, if, if your vessel is equipped for it, you can actually, oh, somebody lose here. Okay, if your vessel's equipped for it, you can, um, you know, launch out of Glen Arbor. I'll tell you, the boat ramp in Glen Arbor is uh, kind of lame. It's one of those metal grids that goes down into the sand, and uh, you know, it's not the best boat ramp there. Uh, there are not a lot of boat ramps in that area. Actually, there's another one down at Empire, which is not any better, but. Uh, you know, it's a it's a nice ride out to the islands. It's uh, I want to say about eleven miles from Glen Arbor, out to the Morazon, rests on the southern tip of of South Manitou. Uh, really cool, really cool, um, you know, ship to see. But it stinks. Oh my gosh, does it stink? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So that that's not frosting in the photo then. <laughs> it's not frosting, although it is on the frost. That you, if you if you do dive this wreck, you get to do a twofer, because just to the south of the Morazon is the Walter Frost. So there's no frosting in the wreck, but the frost actually is almost in in the picture there. So uh, if you uh, dive the wreck, um, you know, take a look just to the south of the wreck. It's Oh, probably 200 feet from the boat, and it's 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 a it's an easy squeezy swim. I mean, when you're out there, um, you know, it's only I don't know. I mean, um, it's it's within 200 feet of the Morazon. You can you can see them. Is, is that is that the one that in one of the shots you can kind of see a shadow in the water? Uh, you know, the Morazon's oh. between it and the shore. Is that is that it or is no? I'm not seeing it in that shot because it's a little bit further to the south than what you're seeing in, the, in, in that, that that title that title shot there. But uh, it's it's there, you know. I mean, uh, it's it's within 200 feet of the Morazon, almost due south of. Yeah, it's uh, it, you see, you got the title photo. It's not the next one. It's not the the next one. The next one. It's like the fourth or fifth one down. It's okay, a screenshot, was... courtesy of Tap Channel YouTube. And it's a it's a pretty wide shot where you can see the uh, the bluff there in the background. Yeah, the picture I'm seeing is looks like the islands behind you, and I'm not seeing. Yeah, it's, no, because because uh, those pictures you're looking at, you both those pictures you're looking south, so the the frost would be beyond that. And these pictures are a couple of years old because the bow. Maybe not. The, the The bow is mostly underwater now. Um, I know the ice of like two years ago really did a number on the boat. But uh, yeah, if you're in the area, it's cool. You can see it. You can also see it from Google Earth too. 
And I think there are some shots. If you go to Google Earth, you can uh, get some close-ups of it, too. But uh, yeah, it's a cool wreck. Just don't get downwind of it. You won't forget it. So Cool. Okay, well, that does it for Scuba News. Uh, well, Kevin, since we mentioned it, uh, did you want to talk about that that other wreck? Yeah, if you're ready for uh, the shipwreck of the week, I can do that. So, uh, basically, yeah, I'm we gonna... can do that since it ties right on in. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see if I can get this thing to pull up here properly. But I'm going to basically just pull this. That... Let me give you. Let me give you the right article here to pull up at least. <laughs> so, oh, where did I have? There we go. I'm just pulling this off of Wikipedia here for you guys. You know, Wikipedia may not have every fact right, but they seem to cover the story pretty well. So here comes a link in the chat room for that. Get my mouse to proper. But as you mentioned in the uh, two articles back. We're talking about the Alvin Clark. I'm sorry, Mac. I didn't mean to cut cut, cut you off about that. It's just I'm I'm glad you shared it there. I just want to totally spill the beans on my shipwreck of the week tonight. But uh, I said I wouldn't have said a word. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um. See, the story of the Alvin Clark we have here was a ship which was discovered in uh, 1969. It had uh, sank in 1864 in Green Bay. Uh, one of the, it was a diver by the name of, let me see if I can get his name out of the article here. Sport diver Frank Hoffman was hired by a commercial fisherman to free nets that had snagged on an unknown obstruction under the surface of Green Bay. Hoffman dove in and discovered the nets tangled in, in what appeared to be a ship's mast. Hoffman initially referred to the wreck as the mystery ship at 19 fathoms, but the ship proved to be the Alvin Clark. It was positively identified through a stencil made below decks by one of the sailors. The ship was completely intact and in excellent condition, and Hoffman secured the salvage rights the next year. He assembled the team that salvaged the ship, recovering artifacts and removing silt from the wreck. Work began in the spring of 1968. The team eventually brought the ship intact to the surface in July 1969. Alvin Clark was, at that time, the finest preserved historic vessel in the United States, according to historian uh, Theodore uh, Kamer Karmansky. It was completely intact. Some of the mechanical systems still worked, and it contained a variety of preserved artifacts. Once the water was pumped out of the holds, the ship still floated. Hoff berthed the ship in Menominee, cleaned and re-rigged it, and eased it into an earthen slip. Hoffman built a museum nearby and exhibited the ship as a tourist attraction as the Mystery Ship Seaport on 6th Street in Menominee. The ship was listed in the, as a Michigan Historic Site in 1972, and designate a member of the National Register of Historic Place, 1970. Now, when the ship was brought up, not a lot was known about how difficult it was to preserve a, a wooden vessel. Now, this was ship ship was built well. It was built of white oak, which is the finest wood of the day. Um, this these ships. Generally, if they're well-maintained, they generally got about 30 years of uh, service out of them. Um, this one, of course, well outlasted that because it was preserved on the cold you know, waters of Lake Michigan. Um, unfortunately, while it was down there, you know, the wood, as mentioned in the previous article, it swells. 
or also there are enzymes in the wood which are water soluble which get removed by the water over, over time and the alvin clark although when it brought up was very very impressive began drying out and when it when when this wood dries out it becomes unstable it begins to splinter crack come apart uh, initially the ship was in good enough shape they even put masts they put 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 sails on it and rigging on it and they sailed it from port to port it was in that good of condition uh very impressive to see this 19th century schooner that had been underwater for over a century still sailing the great lakes of, you know in in, in um, the early 1970s unfortunately because of the wood being exposed to the air now and drying out it rapidly began to, to deteriorate and you know there are pictures you can find online of the ship you know from the 70s and the 80s where the wood is splintering cracking buckling ships coming apart uh, unfortunately the ship was finally um, bulldozed and put in a landfill in 1994. Uh, you know we have all these ships out there, you know, uh, Great Lake Shipwreck File covers around 6,600 lost vessels out there. Uh, so many times, us divers, we're telling our friends about the ships out there. Uh, often we're asked, well, why doesn't someone bring it up? You know, put it in a museum. We all want to see that. Well, this, this is why. Because when you bring these vessels up, uh, for one, it's an awful lot of money. Uh, what we're not seeing here in the article, uh, Frank Hoffman actually went bankrupt out of this deal. Um, he uh, cl he claimed that his marriage failed because of this deal. Uh, extremely uh, expensive, very much involved. I mean, owning a ship, it's often said the captain was married to their vessel. You know, it was, uh, you know, they're very high maintenance. Um, in any event, it did not go very well for Frank Hoffman. In the end, he very much regretted bringing the vessel up because of all the challenges brought into it into his life. Um, this is why we don't bring these up because they last better on the bottom, unless you're going to put in a program, you know, a multi multi million dollar program to re like we saw the restoration of the Mary Rose. And the Vasa. Incidentally, Great Britain has made it public that they will never take on another vessel like the Mary Rose. It's just too expensive. Uh, you know, it's you know, hey, all of us historians, we're very pleased it was brought up. It's a very cool vessel to, to you know to see, even if you only see it online. But it's very, very expensive, and that's why we just. They're better off left on the bottom. So I encourage you to look it up and read it more on your own. The vessel is the Alvin Clark. Um, that is our shipwreck of the week. Thank you. That's very good. Uh, let's see. Do, do we have anybody who got any diving in? Uh, I think uh, Karen and Dave are on their way to get some diving in. Um, and then uh, on you posted some photos on Facebook, Kevin of uh, 
the barge and crane. Yeah, um, I don't think it was just over a week ago that Amy and I got out there, and it's a Sunday, and uh, I don't know, it was just looking like it'd be a, be a good day for a dive, <laughs> you know. And we tend to be a little little blustery. We almost we almost canceled it, but uh, end up uh, having some magnificent visibility. Um, end up about a hundred foot visibility on the barge. The barge is uh, 52 feet long. I'll see if I can find those pictures. I can post them on the, in the chat room there. But um, generally, you don't have that great of visibility at the barge. I mean, you, you, it's not uncommon to have, you know, a 20, 30-foot viz, but you don't use, you're not usually able to see the entire vessel. But uh, I did manage to uh, get some pictures off the vessel that showed the entire ship. Um, also had pretty good visibility out there on the uh, Ann Arbor 5 that day. Fortunately, the, um, let's see, I'm posting a picture from the dive that day. There we go. Um, the Ann Arbor 5 probably had about 80-foot visibility, but uh, extremely dark down there. You know, a very heavy algae layer. Both dives were quite cold. Um, Call actually the readings of my thermometer, but I know it was uh, 50s on the surface and 30s on the, you know, mid 30s on the wreck, upper 30s on the wreck. I want to say, but uh, those cold temps generally lead to great visibility, which what we had those days. So, a couple of good dives. So, in fact, I was kind of happy with them. Actually, I I haven't done a, a lot of de decompression diving this summer, and I you know, did have a decent surface interval in between the two wrecks. Uh, but still, I ended up going into uh, deco on the uh, second dive, and didn't stay down very long. But I was deep enough to you know, go into deco pretty quickly down there, and you know, I had pretty decent sack rate. I you know I finished the dive with over 1500 psi, which is not bad for the time I had down there, and still having five minutes of deco. So, real good time there. So, excellent. Well, that's that's a a great photo. I I did get one dive on that wreck where the visibility was just about that good, uh, and it, uh, that was the second dive of the day. And the first dive we did in the Ann Arbor Five, and that was the only time where, as I came down the line to the Ann Arbor Five, I could see the Ann Arbor Five all the way down to the bottom. Wow. Okay. And that that was pretty impressive because you just like. Like at first, you're not quite sure what you're seeing, but you could just see it. And that was one of those rare days where, uh, and, and it was, I'm trying to remember who was with me on that dive. Cause I think that year we dove it, we dove the Ann Arbor five at least twice. The first time the visibility was just, you know, like seven, 10 feet. It was really bad, but that, that next time we did it, it was beautiful. And then we went and did this one and the visibility wasn't quite as good on the barge and crane as you've got here, but, uh, it was, it was pretty nice. I think it, it was Kurt and Bob and then, uh, Jim Clement, uh, the original Jim okay. in the program. We, we had, uh, we'd done that dive. So that's cool. Those, those always, uh, it's nice that they're right there in line with each other. It makes for a good couple dives. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the Ann Arbor is like nine miles your head and you go right by the barge on the way to the NR. And uh you know yeah they're, they're both really cool dives. Um 
actually pulled some, pulled some fishing gear off of uh, the uh, the barge. Um, I know the steelheaders like to fish out there quite a bit, and uh, I pulled the Dodger and uh, some other stuff. I'll drop off for their club meeting next couple. But uh, yeah, that that uh, that barge tends to be a real tackle trap. Picked up downrigger balls and all kinds of stuff out there. So yeah, if you no. got your 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 gear just you know diving right right above the bottom then that's going to be a perfect snag for it. Yeah, well, these guys, they're like bouncing the bottom looking for lake trout. And uh, actually, you, you can see the lines out there. Uh, in fact, <laughs> one of my pictures I've got of this, it's a different different perspective. But I think the shot that I've got, which has the, uh, from the bow, you can actually see the lines of them dragging it back. Kind of cool, actually. So, but uh, anyhow, have, have you been able to find any more plates or anything on it to give any indication of it? No, I haven't. I mean, um, I think the only way we're gonna really be able to thoroughly identify this, if you look at the if you look at the um, picture I have at the in the chat room, you'll see that there is a machinery room on. The stern of it there to the left mm -hmm. side of the barge and this is something you can penetrate you know uh the bottom there's about 120 and it's a nice swim through you could just about pass a prius through that machinery room um there's a diesel engine in there not steam powered definitely a diesel in the diesel wouldn't be for propulsion this is a barge towed only but it, uh, it's a diesel engine would have a builder's plaque on it somewhere. And if you could find that and get the number off it, you know, by doing some old hardcore research, looking through archives of finding out who, who built it, you might be able to, you know, at least know the company that owned it. Uh, I did a little bit of research on barges a while back, and they weren't named in the way that ships were. Um, they would have the uh, company that owned them, their name on it, but you know they might own thirty barges with all the same all the same uh, name on them. It might mm -hmm. be you know, barge number twenty-seven, barge number twenty-eight, barge number thirty, whatever. But uh, the only real law going back into the nineteen fifties, at least regarding barges, was that they had to have the name of the company which owned them on the barge, but that's going to be under, you know, somewhere on the quad guys. And, right. you know, this vessel has got an awful lot of quad guys on it. So. Yeah. Yeah. And there, and there were a lot of barges and, and there are a lot of barges. It was something my grandfather made quite a few barges mm -hmm. and, and converted barges, barges, white stars, a barge, and then uh, be modified into something else. Some would be self-propelled barges. That, that was mm -hmm. a thing for a while. I don't know, this one here, it may have been lost right around 1970. Um, there's some different mm -hmm. stories on it there, but I know that I gave a uh, presentation to the South Haven Steelheaders about two summers ago, and one of the uh, guys in the audience was Bob Burr. He's the uh, former mayor of uh, South Haven, also a steelheader, avid fisherman, and he told me about 
fishing out there right around 1970. And there was a uh, tug pulling two barges. And he knows that they were right around out front of Palisades when this happened. You know, the, the power plant. And mm -hmm. this isn't too far from being out front of Palisades. In fact, if you were directly out front of Palisades, you would see this real well because, you know, Palisades is only probably about another mile to the south of this here. But from where they were in front of Palisades, they watched this barge go up on its side and go to the bottom. And they heard the uh, tug captain on the radio talking back to the uh, company that, you know, he worked for it said, hey, we just lost a barge. And they said, don't worry about it. Keep going. And so they let, you know, there it went. We don't know this is that barge. You know, there are mm -hmm. other possibilities as well. You know, there's talk about a barge that was, uh, oh, cut loose out in front of um, Palisades when they were building it. Although that barge, I suppose it was a 40-footer. And this one is 52 feet long. So, um you know, Darren, as you say, that these there's a lot of these things that were lost. You know, I know uh, Brennan Baylot, yeah. who we're going to have on the show in the near future. Uh, he's been doing a lot of side scanning up by the Keweenaw area. And he posted a picture <laughs> on his, his Facebook that showed like five barges <laughs> on one area there. And, oh, I got another guy telling me, uh, a friend of mine, um, Brennan Brower, he dives up in uh, group. Grand Rapids area and the Grand River. And I guess there's barges in the Grand River. You know, they're everywhere out there. You know, we got another one of these up there by uh, Holland Saugatuck. Doesn't have this much exposed. It's mostly in the sand. But yeah, there's a few of these out here. So. Yeah, very, very cool. Nice photos. Thank you. That was just taken with a GoPro. That was, an e that was a pretty easy shot there, really. So just, a, yeah. just had good conditions. Yeah, I, I like sometimes just taking screenshots off a of video because you've got a, a you know, quite a few to choose from you always got the as long as you got a, a good video overall there's always a, a few good spots to grab a mm -hmm. sell or two well mac are you aware of any other diving going on no but it has been a, a, a dry month for myself i was just wondering what the river was looking like uh, the St. Joe River sucks because I had been looking at that because we got the turkey dive, perhaps, or at least some people may want to hit it. Uh, and the leaves have fallen in, in Niles, so it's going to be a little awkward there if you're looking for bottles. The bottom is covered. Anyone else? Uh, I see we got uh, Derek and Eric in the uh, chat room. I think Derek is kind of locked. I mean, Eric is kind of locked down right now, but. Uh, yeah. Either of you guys got any dives in recently? I didn't see him showing us any uh, seahorses or anything to rub in our face. So. <laughs> it kind of sad to see that uh, Karen and Dave left us. They're they were in the chat earlier. I guess we must have bored them and they split. But they're they're diving for uh, shark teeth this week, aren't they? Over in uh, South yeah. Carolina. Yeah, they're looking for megalodon teeth. Yeah, megalodon. Well, it's just, it is getting late, so if they're getting out there to be diving, they need to rest. And they yeah, may have I, to get up early to get out there. Yeah. I, I did, uh, I saw on TV the, the movie Megalodon was on, so I watched it. And uh, I wanted to hate it more than I did. <laughs> it's, it's not terrible, you know? No, it's I mean, not, it's. 
for for Saturday afternoon, just busy TV. You know, it th- there's there's nothing realistic about it. Uh, they had uh, one of the actors from Office Space on as the billionaire funding all of it, and the, you know there were so many just technical things like yeah that doesn't happen that doesn't happen that doesn't happen, and then let's just forget about the megalodon. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the all the center of the world uh, movies or the you know King Kong Island or something. Yeah, the the premise is that there's some area of the ocean that for whatever reason we kind of ignored or didn't realize there was something else there. And then the, the Megalodon doing its thing, but I mean, it was entertaining. I would recommend it, <laughs> but yeah, it, you know, it's not, it's not one of those where I wanted to poke my eyes out and the actors were all good. That was what was alarming about it, is I, as I liked the, the actors in it. You're saying that it wasn't another 47 meters? No, I, well, I haven't seen 47 meters, but oh my, uh, you, you, oh, don't, don't see it because you can't unsee it, man. You. It, you it is so it. bad. Okay. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, the, uh, and then another movie I saw this weekend that was somewhat uh, diving nautical related was uh, Ghost Ship. And uh, that was another one that had some actually some pretty good actors in it, but. The, the plot was just horrible. <laughs> that was a horrible one. Uh, I, I would not uh, recommend it. The opening scene was kind of interesting until they they uh, killed everybody with a cable on the dance floor. And I'm not mm. spoiling anything. That happens the first <laughs> bit of the movie. Yeah, the, it's, the, the, the premise is that it's a cruise ship. Uh, uh, and uh, it's just uh, bad because of... Uh, something that's that's on it but uh yeah yeah that that one i i wouldn't recommend no uh, yeah it, it it had potential i mean all these had potential but they just kind of like fall down somewhere uh, so if you if you've got a movie and you think it's good something dive related then drop us a line at the show at scubaobsessed.com uh also uh while we're at the the pitch stage of the show uh, we certainly could use your support. I'm, I've got a big uh, hosting bill coming up uh, soon. And and when you're you're helping us, you're also helping other organizations. I donate hosting for quite a few groups. And that uh, same host that hosts the show also hosts them. And uh, uh, certainly appreciate it. So you go to www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over the Patreon link and $3 or more gets you early access to the show notes. Hopefully you're receiving some value. I mean, if, if not, then why are you listening to it? Uh, but it, it helps keep us on. And we've just finished our, we're getting ready to finish our 11th season, going on our 12th season. And I, I can remember thinking, well, maybe we'll get to 100 episodes. But this, this year should cross the 500 episode. This year? Uh, line. Yeah, this, this coming up season. So uh, okay. we'll have to think of something to do for 500. Am I doing the math right? Am I? Yeah, we're at 470. Yeah, so that's only 30 away. Yeah. 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 This little over six months. So yeah, we'll, we'll be there. Cool. Mac, do you have a dive safety story for the week? Well, actually, I do. I don't think I've covered this one, but I've read other ones similar to it. Uh, it's called You'll Be Okay. Reassuring an anxious diver may not always be the right approach. Clara was a 25-year-old diver planning on dives on the West Coast. 
The dives would be her first since she completed her open water certification two months ago. She contacted the shop that certified her. They told her about an upcoming charter and assured her the dives would be within her ability. When she asked about a dive buddy, she was told she would be paired up on the boat. She mentioned that all her training dives had been from shore and this would be her first boat dive. She was told a dive professional would be on board to assist her and she decided to join the trip. The dive. On the way to the dive site, Clara was introduced to her buddy who will be called Jake. He had done almost 18 dives in his lifetime and had not been diving in more than a year and all his previous dives were in the Caribbean. As the boat approached the dive site, both divers expressed reservations when they learned the dive instructor on board would be training a student rather than diving with them, as promised. But they were told not to worry and that everything would be fine. Jake had difficulty setting up his equipment and told the instructor his rental BCD was too tight, which made it hard for him to breathe. Once in the water, Claire was unable to descend, so the crew slipped additional weights into her BCD pockets. By the time these problems were resolved, the other divers had descended and Claire and Jake descended alone. A plankton bloom, typical for the season and location, limited visibility near the surface. The divers overcame their anxiety by giving each other the OK sign repeatedly as they descended. At about 30 feet, the visibility began to clear, but it was dark and neither diver had light. About 10 minutes into the dive, Jake turned to look at Claire, who had been swimming right behind him, and he realized she was not there. After a moment, he saw something or someone in distance and swam towards that person. As he approached, he saw it was Claire and realized she was unconscious. Grabbing her by her BCD, he attempted to ascend. He kicked hard, but was unable to make progress towards the surface. He did not think to release her weights or inflate the, her, BD, her BCD and was soon overcome with exhaustion. Jake struggled to get enough air through his regulator and began to panic. He released Claire and headed for the surface, spitting out his regulator on the way. Hitting the surface, gasping, choking, and unable to call for help, the captain noticed him struggling and motored over to him, unable to talk or breathe. Jake kept pointing down. Once the captain realized there was a problem, he made a distress call, initiated a diver recall by tapping the boat's ladder with a hammer. Not all divers responded to the call promptly, and some just decided to do their safety stop before surfacing. Precious time was lost. Claire was found in approximately 60 feet of water by the instructor and another diver. CPR was instituted once she was brought on board and a Coast Guard boat arrived to transfer her to an ambulance on shore. Claire's heart was started in the ambulance on the way to the hospital where she was placed on life support and in intensive care. But Claire never regained consciousness and three days after the accident, the divers determined she would never have enough brain function to breathe on her own and made the decision to discontinue life support. Now the discussion. Neither Claire nor Jake was sufficiently experienced for this dive. Claire never dove without a professional guide and never had dove from a boat. She relied on someone else to guide her through her process, through the process, 
and Jake did not die for more than a year, did not take a refresher skills course before the trip, never been taught to do what with an you know to do what with an unconscious diver. He had complained prior to the dive his BCD was too, too tight, limited his ability to breathe. When Claire's regulator was tested after the accident, that was determined to be performing below manufacturer specifications. An inability to breathe properly may have contributed to both Clara's unconsciousness and Jake's sense of panic as he attempted to assist her to the surface. Key item there is whenever rental equipment is used, its fit and function should be assessed by the diver who will use it before he or she leaves the dive shop, and certainly before they leave a boat. Dive operators should consider greater oversight and supervision of inexperienced divers, especially when visibility is low and the divers are unfamiliar with the site or conditions. Neither Claire nor Jake had sufficient knowledge to evaluate whether the dive fell within the scope of their competence. Both divers relied on someone else's opinion that the dive was appropriate for them. Claire lacked the experience to know what questions to ask, so she trusted the dive shop employee who told her not to worry. Jake expressed misgivings about his equipment and the lack of supervision prior to the dive. But despite this, he trusted the instructor who told him it would be better once he got underwater. Both divers decided to go ahead with the dive despite their apprehensions. There were many opportunities for either Claire or Jake to have decided not to dive. New divers may not have adequate background to anticipate the potential for an accident. But every diver needs to have ingrained in them the notion that if they're not feeling good about a dive, they should not get into the water. Assurance have expressed that anxiety, and hopefully we've been successful in mitigating it by participating with the dive with them and not letting them go alone. And that's yep. it. Yep. You can always call the dive. Yeah. It, but you know, it, it is hard to do that. You know, you take the time, money to get out there. You got oh, yeah. peer pressure, you know, and people say, nah, it's not a big deal that you can. Um, you know, you got to be careful with that. You can always say that you can't clear your ears, you can't go down, and no one's going to know that but you. Okay. So there, there's your out. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and, and I, but I, but kind of back to Max's point. I think sometimes you've you've spent the money, you've gone on a trip. Before you went on the trip, people are asking you what you're going to do. You're bragging about you're going to do the dive. You don't want to come back and say, "Well, you know, I chickened out. I didn't want to do the dive." Uh, but you know, usually if there's something you're not feeling good, about, there's there's a reason. Uh, and the key word there is you can't tell yourself, "Well, I'm chickening out because that's not the right." Yeah, impression. It's just I just not did I did not feel good about not the dive and I didn't That's, do it. Yeah, I, I, yeah and I, we I, as divers have got to reinforce that. Mm -hmm. Well, and and diver stress is something which really adds you know to likely having having an accident. And if you're not feeling good about something down there, it may just be something in the back of your mind bugging you that hey, I'm not with it today. Right there, you're starting off with diver stress. Any diver can call any dive for any reason or without a reason. If it's just not for you today, don't do it. As and we have you, to, we got to encourage the newbies to do that. 
as yeah. long as you keep on making the right choices, there's always another dive. Yeah. You know, you know we like to go down and see these uh, all these shipwrecks we have in our area, all these wonderful, magnificent, you know, uh, time capsules and some call them ice water mansions. But you know, those those wrecks have been down there for a day or two. You know, they'll probably be there next year when you come back. You know, just make sure that you're in the good enough condition to come back next year. Very good. Thank you, Mac. Mac, Mac, you have anything you want to plug before we get on out of here? No, I just hope the month goes better than last month. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that kind of goes for the year in general. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm ready for for things to be on the upswing. How about you, Kevin? The time is on our side here. We only got two months left of 2020 here. Okay. Yeah. You know this. There's going to be a one heck of a New Year's party. You know, everyone's going to be at a big time New Year's party this time around. So, anything to plug here? Yes, absolutely. I want to remind our listeners to please support your local dive center. We all like those deals online, but those deals online are not going to fill your scuba tanks or service your regulators. Um, Also support your local libraries. Uh, Libraries are really struggling with with funding. Uh, Any chance you have to uh, send a few more bucks for the millage, please do. Also support your local museums. Museums are really having a hard time during COVID. They do a great deal of their uh, income is generated through admission sales which uh just not happening right now so please support your local museums take out a membership you know pay the membership whether you go or not you know Mm -hmm. these museums are are such a huge part of what gets the next generation interested in what's beneath the surface so please support them yeah yeah the uh, museum there in bering springs they were they're having a, a tough time uh, they had planned an outdoor event, and they thought they had it all safe. And the county health department called them up and went, mm, yeah, according to our guidelines for the county, what you're doing, you just can't do safely. So they ended up canceling it. And I'm sure they were hoping to have a little bit of revenue, even though it was just donation-based. Getting people out and doing stuff uh, helps them bring in their money. So anything you do along those lines, I'm yeah. sure they would appreciate. Yeah, the Heritage Museum downtown St. Joe has closed down same reason yeah uh, and and the thing is that they a lot of times they're run by volunteers so it's not that they're saving money on payroll it's just that they they need money to pay for insurance and for electric and all those other things that they do and they they usually do have a small staff that gets paid so well um, and a lot of it's just that people just aren't coming out no, I mean they're the the people are avoiding going to indoor entertainment these days, mm-hmm. and that's your museums. You know they're having a hard time these days. So, uh, a lot of them are still open. Make sure you call first because, uh, um, much as we enjoy Google, it doesn't always keep up with the the changes from COVID here. Because uh, we we actually were looking at going to the um, Michigan History Center two weeks ago. Google said it was open, and they weren't. <laughs> we we knew we found it before we went up there, fortunately. But uh, you know, uh, I'd say call and talk to somebody before you go to a museum these days. But uh, certainly patronize them. You know, I mean, 
you can often you can often get a membership from these folks, you know, which basically then they're getting the um, benefit of your admission, whether you're there or not, you know, and it's, you know, these are worthwhile institutions here. These are what preserves our heritage on for the next generation. So please support your museums, your libraries, and your local dive center. Hey, and support us too with a, you know, take a look at Patreon, use some money, but Mm -hmm. by all means, museums, local dive centers, and libraries. Okay. So are you guys ready for that time of the show? We are. Bring it on. Okay. I I think Mac may relate to this one a little bit. So um, uh, the Marshes were shown into the uh, dentist surgery where Mr. Marsh, uh, uh, Mr. Marsh takes it absolutely clear that he's in no big hurry. No expense extras, Dr. Marsh demands, no gas, no needles, or any of the fancy stuff. Just pull the tooth and get it over with. Well, I wish I had more patients that were as strong-minded, as brave as you, Mr. Marsh, said the dentist admiringly. Now, which tooth is it? Mr. Marsh turns to his wife and says, show him your tooth, honey. Uh, uh, (laughs) Always a gentleman. Well, he did say honey. Yeah, yeah. A little term of endearment there. Uh, so until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And have a good time. out for the second time he's still there i bingo i just there we go yeah i had to jump into the chat room and tell him to get off his ass <laughs> then he, he wakes up this is the second week in a row where it's done that i don't know he was, he was looking for the bubble machine eric, eric got him confused yeah 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 lawrence welk my my great-grandmother used to listen to that when every time if you came over I think Lawrence Welk was like between five and six or something. I don't remember that. Yeah, I I can't remember what channel she used to watch on. It might have been PBS or something. He was on. And I and the thing is that yeah, and this was in the seventies. I don't even think it was like recent Lawrence Welk. I think it was like reruns of Lawrence Welk. But yeah, she liked it. She's probably listening to that instead of Pink Floyd or Pink Floyd. I was never into that. I was trying to figure out when I started or when I stopped listening to the radio because I was either working or something. It was 1972. Everything be- behind that, I, I'm really versant, conversant with. From 72 on up, not a clue. <coughs> oh, so you missed, you missed out on the Grateful Dead. John Denver. Oh, man. Okay, now John Denver. Yeah, Denver, I know. I am, I know. 
Yeah, but you missed out on ABBA and sticks and. Okay, I take that back. ABBA is my favorite. All right. Well, then you you were listening for '72 if you listen to ABBA. Yeah. No, I like them. Always have. Take a chance on it. <laughs> okay. Well, here we go.